welcome to What Works with Sophie Scott from UCL. And what we are going to be talking about in these podcasts are the different ways that we've all got into science, the kind of stuff that we do, and what we find works for us in terms of managing our days, managing the other stuff we have to worry about, and organising our science. And it's a real pleasure to kick things off today by talking to my colleague, Antonia Hamilton. Antonia, hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, Antonia, um, can we go back as far as you would like to go back and just yeah. think about how, how, how did you get here? What was your route into sort of choosing science and academia as a career? Um, I guess fairly unusually. I decided when I was about 15 that I was going to be a neuroscientist. And so I did. That is, that is indeed quite unusual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what interested you about neuroscience? Can you remember what engaged you at that age? Um, I read a book about it. Oh, excellent book. <laughs> it was called The Making of Memory. Is that um, Alan Badley? No. no, no, no. It was someone who, I can't remember the name, but he was doing research with chicks who were learning about different tastes that were sweet and bitter and then dissecting yeah. brains and all sorts of things. But it just gave me this whole sort of world of stuff that wasn't taught at all at school. Yeah. Because in the GCSE syllabus, you did, you know, hearts and lungs and guts and this kind of thing. And no one mentioned anything that happened inside your head. And I've yeah. always liked doing the stuff that I haven't been taught. So yes. that was what I decided to do. It's interesting. <laughs> I, I can remember discovering when I, I'd left home and was studying biology when I did a course on animal behaviour and I had the mm. same experience. I was just, wait, wait, what? You can apply the principles of science to actions? Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> Absolute revelation. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you'd made your mind up at 15 that you wanted to do neuroscience. How yes. did you kind of take that forward? What did you do for, you know, did you, did you do sciences at A-level? Um, for A-level, I did... Chemistry, biology, maths, and Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I can see where you were going there, and then it took quite a marked yep. turn at the end. <laughs> exactly. That was because um, I wanted to have some uh, a subject that involved writing, not just science, and that was the nicest teacher. Oh, well, that's a good reason. That's yeah. a good reason. Um, and actually, the, the, the course wasn't just Old Testament. It also included a few bits of philosophy and what they called psychology, but it was mainly Freud. Um, but, you know, it, it gave a bit of um, different way of thinking about stuff. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, and what did you then go on to do at university? Then I went to Oxford and did... Well, actually, when I was applying, I thought I wanted... I, only heard of psychology in terms of Freud, and I knew I didn't want to do Freud, so I thought I was going to do um, philosophy and physiology, which was available as an option. But everyone said, oh no, that's really hard to get into, so why don't you just apply for the psychology course and then transfer when you get there? And I got there and then discovered that actually psychology meant cognitive psychology, which was precisely what I'd wanted to do in the first place, but I just hadn't heard of what it was. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. So, yeah, that's what I ended up doing. And what kind of stuff did you enjoy doing when you were an undergraduate? Um, oh, I was like doing the sort of quite um, geeky, I guess, human information processing courses and this kind of thing. Mm. And then I spent a while as a research assistant in a baby lab, um, which was quite interesting. I decided I never want to work with babies again. <laughs> They're much too much work. (laughs) Yes, I can see that. Um, But yeah, that was just a a, a good place to get started on things. Mm. Um, And I even got a paper out of it, which was quite nice. That is very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do? I don't know enough about the Oxford system. Yes. Did you do a dissertation? Yes, I did. I did it. My third dissertation was on visual attention. 
I found a new 200 millisecond reaction time effect that I never got around to publishing and never did anything about since. There's but I've always thought I should have done. <laughs> you, there's something about 200 milliseconds, isn't there? Yeah. There's something about that as an amount of time and mm-hmm. cognition that's... Yeah. It's all, you just um, keep coming back to it, don't you? Tell me about hmm. your effect. Um, so this was... Uh, I was interested in the idea of um, is there binding of stuff within objects? So do you bind the, fig- the colour and the shape together yeah. and things? And so I gave people a task where you had a... Um, red square or a blue triangle you hit the left key and a um blue triangle or a red square whatever you hit you hit the other key so you've you've can only do the task right if you bind the shape and the color together mm. and then you got this either with the um shape and color integrated in a single object or with a white shape on a colored background mm. and you're far faster when they're within the single object yeah yeah um which kind of makes sense Oh, that is very um, interesting. But at the time, all of the models that I was learning about were sort of Treesman feature-based models where it's just about, you know, is there a blob of red and is there a slopey line? And then you could, um, you know, link those two things regardless of where they were in the visual scene and how they, the visual scene was structured. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, And what did yeah. you do after your first degree? Um, so then... Again, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I didn't really know what in. And I happened to meet somebody who was doing... Um, actually, I heard of mirror neurons um, at some point and sort of thought, started to think, you know, well, we haven't been taught any motor control in this course so far. I better go and find out something about motor control. Yeah. And I happened to meet somebody who was doing a PhD with Daniel Walpert at UCL. And so I looked him up. This was before Google even existed, but just about found a few things mm. um, and thought that looks quite interesting and sent an email said hello can I come and do a PhD with you yeah <laughs> um, so I did my PhD on um, the movement of a single finger very very low level what's the patterns of variability in individual motor neurons and how does that um, make you know control the um, things like individual finger movements and were you and doing things. that in humans or in humans yes how do you do that in humans um, you get a force transducer, right. and you can instruct people to push down on the force transducer with different levels of force. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that um, if, as you push down more, you also become more variable. And there's a linear relationship between how much you push and how variable it is. Yeah. Um, which is, And that was a sort of basic principle of how Daniel's computational models of the motor system worked. But the problem is that the noise in individual neurons is not linear. The noise in individual neurons has a Poisson distribution. And so there was this kind of debate about how, how do we get linear behaviour out of neurons that are firing with a Poisson distribution. Yeah. So I was building computational models of how the neurons are working and how you put them together and then comparing those to some experimental data and we could come up with a nice model that explained all of this. Can you very briefly summarise the model because that's fascinating. Uh, yep. Um, so the key factor turns out to be the fact that there's a um, distribution of thresholds within your motor units so the motor units that are innovating a muscle, some of them are very low threshold, they'll go when you first start activating. And those tend to be the very small units that just do, you know, move a teeny tiny bit. And then the more and more you activate your muscle until it's as hard as possible, then you start activating the bigger units. Yeah. And so because you've got this distributed range of motor units, you can end up, even though each individual unit is Poisson, with getting a linear type of noise out. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so you've done visual attention, you've worked in a baby lab, yes. you've looked at incredibly <laughs> beautiful modelling of the yes. motor system. What mm-hmm. did you do next? Um, then I moved to work with Uta Frith on autism. 
Okay, so, so another move, exactly. <laughs> um, and, I, and I always say, because pe- people always say in terms of careers that, you know, it, it's a really good idea to, to move about to different places and things. But I was thinking that, that that, in a way, was the biggest move in my academic career was from that side of Queen's Square to this side of Queen's Square. Yeah, not <laughs> physically very far, but conceptually quite a... Ex- ex- exactly, because, yeah, um, yeah I, ha- I had the chance to do a postdoc with um, Uta working with children with autism, and um, this was the the point when there was a lot of hype about mirror neuron systems and our mirror neuron systems different in autism and this mm. kind of thing. Um, so I was trying to develop some studies to um, test that out. And how did you find the move? So what was it like going from a, a very kind of, kind of mm-hmm. almost like a... Yeah, a, a very kind of. I keep coming back to the word mm-hmm. clean. I kind of want to say clean motor lab. It seems the questions are incredibly well defined, and your well, yeah. concepts. I mean, that might just be my bias. Mm-hmm. What was it like making the change? Um, I, I, it was fine. I mean, you know, in, in both places, I had very supportive supervisors and lots of flexibility to get on with stuff mm-hmm. and things. So it, it wasn't that hard, and it was it it was a different area, different literature, but um, not that different and I think I had an advantage because so few people have done motor control and I could come into this autism area with a great big background in motor control when people were just getting interested in motor control questions yeah and actually have some better ways of tackling them yeah and things that was quite useful Um, I think it is a real strength if you've got uh you know these kinds of quite technical computational skills Mm. to actually be able to take that into a different field yeah can be incredibly powerful Mm. Yeah, um, and that was also the point. So when I back when I was an undergraduate, I'd worked as a volunteer quite a lot with children with learning difficulties, and that was again a really useful thing that I could draw on um, course, yeah. when I then came to do the postdoc because we were working with the same kind of population of children, and just the more time you spent with these kids, the better. So you were actually you weren't off just modelling the data; you were collecting the data as well. What was that like? Um, do you mean in my PhD? I mean, well, obviously in your PhD. Yes. Bit, but when you, when you came to the ICN, you were doing data collection yes. with children with autism yes. as well as working with the data. What, what yeah. was that like? Um, that was really interesting um, because we'd be going into schools all over London and um, there was me and a couple of undergraduate project students who were working with me and we had to develop the tasks mm. and then persuade the kids to sit down and do these tasks. And these were children who were... Um, you know, didn't have much language abilities, weren't normally um, taking part in research or being cooperative and things. So mm. it was um, a lot of just a sort of interpersonal skills, I guess, and then looking up, um, finding ways to engage the children and make them understand yeah. that, you know, think that these things are fun um, because you can't just tell them what to do. No, <laughs> no, that's not going to work, is it? Yeah. No. Um, um, what kind of thing did you find? Um, so there we found that children with autism showed exactly the same patterns of behaviour as typical children, um, which is one of these things that sounds like a null result is boring. But actually, in the domain of autism, I think that's really interesting because yeah. there were so many people claiming that these children couldn't imitate actions, that they couldn't understand goal-directed actions. And yet, when you go out and test them, you find that their behaviour was just... They, and they were not just getting everything right, but they were making the same systematic error pattern that the typical children did. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could really say that, you know, there just isn't a difference here. They're doing the same stuff. And that's a very interesting point about not just getting things right, but also when it goes wrong, it's going wrong in the same way. What, yeah. what kind of systematic errors are you talking about? Um, so the typical children imitated actions in a goal-directed fashion. So um, they would tend to copy 
the goal of the action, which thing you touch, and not bother about which hand to use to do that. Mm. And the autistic kids base did exactly the same thing. So they're functionally showing precisely the same kind of, um, you know, they, they, when they get it right, they're getting it right the same yes. way. When it goes wrong, it's going wrong in the same way. Yeah. Does um, do you think that's does that is that telling us something? What mm. what importance is this telling us about autism? Um, that that's telling us, I guess, that there are skills that these kids can do typically and again that's something that you can then use for mm. um, teaching them new skills um, that you can build on um, and that when the children are instructed to copy mm. these were all tasks where it was explicitly copying that you say copy me then they can do it just yeah. fine yeah um, because again the claim at the time was that these kids can't imitate they can't copy stuff and that's such an important thing for any child to learn by copying and so we're showing if you tell the kids copy me then they do it yeah yeah um, so that's your you've done a PhD in motor control and you've worked now with people with autism mm-hmm. and in children in children's yes. populations and you've been doing it in schools which is hard yeah what did you do next then I decided I needed to learn fMRI so I went and did a postdoc in Dartmouth in New Hampshire oh wow so we've yeah. gone completely the very big changes the, so this point coming to the end of my PhD I got married very shortly after that I then moved to America leaving my husband behind and <laughs> this kind of thing um, but he then got a job in Boston so I was in New Hampshire mm. and he was in Boston which was not too far away and um, yeah at Dartmouth I was working with um, Scott Grafton who does motor control and imaging mm. um, and as a postdoc, that was a good place for, for research. We had an MRI scanner. It was in the basement. You could wander downstairs and scan when you liked, pretty much. <laughs> um, and again, a lot of freedom just to do stuff. Yeah. Um, and so we started using things like a repetition suppression method to... Can you just say the, what that is? Um, so repetition suppression is the idea that when you see the same thing twice in a row, you do the same thing twice in a row, you're going to have a smaller brain signal a second time around. Um, and that can be a really useful way to pull apart sort of different detailed representations within the brain mm-hmm. because we wanted to say what's um, the brain system that deals with goal-directed actions but it doesn't make sense to have an action without a goal. You can't sort of see a video of a person picking up a cookie and then see a video of a person doing the same action without the cookie and do a subtraction between those yeah. because actually the video without the cookie is taken as a communicative mime of trying to pretend to have a cookie yeah. or something. It just yeah. it doesn't work to subtract these things. Yeah. So instead we could do, um, we use things like repetition suppression where you see person big taking cookie and then cookie again and then cookie again and you predict yeah. the response is going to go down and then if you switch to a person taking a pen or a computer disc or whatever it is, back in the day of floppy disks, yeah. um, then, then you get a release from suppression. Um, and so using that kind of method, we were able to pull apart different areas of the mirror neuron system so we could show that parietal cortex is really sensitive to the goal of an action mm-hmm. and then inferior frontal cortex is sensitive to the different kinematic parameters and to really sort of make finer distinctions within these different brain systems. So you've been in Dartmouth for a couple of years, you then came back to the UK? Yes, so when my contract was coming to an end at Dartmouth, I knew I wanted to come back to the UK, I applied for every job going, and I got one in Nottingham, so I ended up coming to Nottingham. Oh, brilliant. uh, Which turned out to be great. Home Um, of fMRI. Yes, exactly, they had some very, you know, lots of great scanners, and um, a really nice, friendly, supportive department... Um, there were three other new lecturers hired at the same time as me. We all got on well. Um, it, uh, founded a, a very good place to be 
a junior person in that first lecturing job um, where they're going, you know, it, it was quite well structured, it was, um, it was quite supportive and so yeah, that worked out pretty well. And it's a really important, um, that first step into a lectureship actually is, it is a really, really big deal exactly yes. how, you know, because it's not all departments treat new lecturers Exactly. It, 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 it was way. definitely a very big change and I didn't have much idea about what, what I was getting myself in for in terms mm. of teaching and all of the other things that I needed to do. Um, but I think by luck more than judgment it worked out very well. Yeah. And I spent the last couple of months of my postdoc position applying for grants um, and I was lucky that when I got to Nottingham about a month later I got my first grant so I could establish myself straight away with having yeah. a PhD student, having hiring a postdoc, mm. getting on with some research and things. Um, which I think was also very, very useful that I could um, not immediately be burdened down with yeah. only teaching and things. Did you do some teaching? Yes, um, I taught um, uh, some second-year labs, a couple of first-year lectures, a third-year module. There was always marking, there was tutorials. Mm. Um, the teaching was fairly evenly distributed um, around the department, so everybody did a bit, but That's none good, of it, it was an impossible amount, yeah. which was nice. And what was your first grant to look at? Um, so my first grant was um, very much following up on what I'd done before. So um, this idea of other goal representations in the brain and then can we pin mm-hmm. it down? How um, does it matter who the person is performing the actions? Does it matter what um, if it's a human performing the actions versus an animated shape um, yeah. and these kind of things? soon after I came to Nottingham was when I had my first baby. Oh, um, a busy time. <laughs> so that was also quite busy. Um, but again, I was incredibly lucky that I hired a postdoc, and so then when I was on maternity leave, my postdoc was able to take over quite a lot of my teaching, yeah. um, which I think was quite useful for him because he, when he was applying for jobs a few years later, he could then say, yeah. I've done all of this teaching and things as maternity cover. Um, and, yes. yeah, and he kept the lab together, essentially, yeah. while I was off for a bit. It is... I, um, my experience of maternity leave was that I didn't entirely, completely get maternity leave. Mm-hmm. There were some things that sort of don't really stop, like yes. PhD students don't go away, yeah. and you know, nor indeed should you just... Exactly. You know. So I, I ended up taking longer than I'd expected mm. to do for maternity leave, but yeah. also I was still keeping involved with work yes. for much of that. Yeah. I don't know. I know everybody's different. Did you yeah. feel that you had it at work for you? Uh, I was still very much... Keeping, keeping involved with the work. Equally, I, I had a baby who didn't sleep for about 18 months, <laughs> yes. um, which was just brutally <laughs> exhausting. Um, but, yeah, she went to nursery when she was um, about five or six months and I was going back to work. Yeah. And um, sometimes work was quieter and more peaceful than being at home. <laughs> yes. um, I can remember Hector sleeping through one night. When mm-hmm. he was four months old, and I was like, yes, he started sleeping yeah. through, and then that was it. Then he does. <laughs> For years and years and years. Rosemary yeah. Varley said, oh, my son didn't sleep through till he was 17. <laughs> 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 I, yeah, now I understand that the, the tales in this distribution are quite long, you know, yes. they're, they're quite wide. Yeah. It is. Um, um, I, I'm not going to name them, but I do remember coming back from maternity leave, and mm-hmm. um a male colleague saying to me, oh, it must be good to get to use your brain again. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any idea how much work it is looking after a baby? Yes. Like no, no mm. attention experiment with distractors and multiple tasks to manage exactly. ever gets close to it. No, you can't. You, it, it was, yeah. It's pretty full on, isn't it? 
It's very exhausting. And how how um, how did things pan out in Nottingham? How you know how long did you end up being there? Um, so I spent six years in Nottingham. Um, so yeah, um, I had a lab there. Nottingham was very good at um, supporting PhD students. Mm. So I had several PhD students um, and. We did some research on autism and some scanning and um, then I applied for an ERC consolidator grant Mm -hmm. which was about um, looking at brain mechanisms and cognitive mechanisms of mimicry, so what makes you produce mimicry, um, what happens when you're being mimicked by another person, that kind of thing. And um, there we wanted to move into the domain of virtual reality and use virtual people to have really well-controlled stimuli but have better ecological validity, have things a bit more interactive than what we'd done before using just videos. Um, And um, I got the ERC grant around about the same time a job came up at ICN, which is where I'd done my postdoc, and that was the job I'd always wanted. Mm. So it came at just the right time to apply for it. And it was great for us at the ICN because you were bringing in kind of... You know, mm-hmm. the autism theme along with you yeah. know, motor control and mm. you're really kind of a clever and coherent approach to using different technical things to help support your research like your use of yeah. VR and motion capture and mm-hmm. things like that yeah so yeah it's worked <laughs> out quite well here <laughs> uh, and here I'm at UCL certainly. so um uh has there been um I mean, everybody finds a different way of managing it, but mm. you're a working parent, yeah. and there are multiple kind of mm. com- competing things for your time. How, yes. How do you kind of manage your your mm-hmm. week, your days? Um, I, I have a fairly solid sort of structure to the week that we always have lab meetings on Tuesday lunchtimes, and um, then um, at home I have a nanny three days a week who picks the children up from school so that, um, and luckily my husband also has very flexible work, so there's one evening of the week when he picks the children up, mm. one when I pick them up, and the other three the nanny picks the kids up. Um, and I always work from, or try to always work from home on Fridays so mm. that I have one day when um, I don't have people knocking on my door and I can actually try and get on with writing yeah. and that kind of thing. But I mean, it's always, it's, it's always a bit of juggling, but actually the, one of the things I like a lot about academia is that I'm very much in charge of my own timetable and um, mm. can set meetings and things in a way that works for me. And when I contrast that with friends or colleagues who are in law or finance or journalism or any of these kind of things they, they have many more constraints yeah. um, in some of these other kind of jobs I can remember when I was first um, Hector was small and I was going to a mother and baby group mm. I, I live quite near here and a lot, one of the other mothers worked yeah. in the, the print size of journalism mm. and she was having a tremendous battle with her employers because they would yeah. not let her return to work without her having to do nights mm. And she had this newborn baby. Yes. Her husband travelled to work, so she yeah. was having to pay for a nanny. A night nanny. Who could do overnight. And yes. It was costing more than her salary. Yeah. They were being absolutely intransigent. And I thought, mm. I'm not having to deal with any of that. I mean, yes. I'm not saying it's easy, yes. but I'm not having to deal with that kind of scale of just sort of impossibility of how you could do the job at all. Yeah. It's... And again, people in medicine and things, were, or, yeah. you know, shift work is far, far harder. Um, I mean, I found the hardest thing in academia is travelling for conferences. Um, now my children are bigger, then it's fine. But certainly when they were little, it was very, very hard to leave them. Yes. Um, and with my second child, I took her with me to quite a lot of conferences. I was a bit more confident that I could manage to yeah. travel with a baby. So I gave talks holding her and this kind of thing. Yes. But that yes. doesn't work for all babies. <laughs> no, no. But it's certainly, uh-huh. I think, um, 
I think it is it's worth bearing in mind the kind mm. of I mean the flexibility that being an academic does mm-hmm. buy on. I'm not saying it's easy, but it yeah. is. Uh, I have one of my favourite papers mm. um, I published in 2000. It came out at the end of 2006, and actually, yeah. I can remember finishing um, getting it off to the journal just before I went on maternity leave, mm. and the the, uh, the first author and the last author, me, were mm. both very pregnant at that time. Then yeah. we did revisions when my son had just been born, mm. and yeah. <laughs> my colleague was so pregnant. She- she couldn't Good sit at the desk to write. She, she came round to the flat and I was rocking Hector to sleep with yeah. one foot while she was... I put a drum stool, a computer on a drum stool so she could reach it. Yeah. And then we did the final revision to the paper when both babies were mm. quite small and we walked around yeah. Queen Square to get them to go to sleep and then ran to my office to finish doing <laughs> the thing. And then the paper came out. And I, yes. I love that paper because none of, the, none of that mm. was in there, but the whole thing couldn't be more kind of embedded in two women managing yes, all the, the stuff around it. It was... It was Sort of mm. amazing. Yeah. But no one ever says all that paper was written by two women as quickly as they could do because their papers were yeah, sleeping about that, imagine at that exact yes, time. Yes, that paper was you typing know, in bed. Yes, you know, sort of thing. It's, it's a sort of the beauty and sometimes mm. the tyranny of the academic career is at the bottom line it's the papers and yeah. you know the, 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 all the other stuff all that all falls away from it. That's not, mm. that's not there. Yeah. So it's... Mm-hmm. It, 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 if you can cope with some of the other anxieties, I'm cope mm. the wrong phrase. The anxieties of yeah. academic life, I'm not saying are trivial, but mm. I think embracing some of the flexibilities can really help you, yeah, sort of see the positive side of it. Exactly, and again, the fact that you can work at home in the evenings and you can, you know, do do things on your own timetable makes such an enormous difference. Definitely. So one of the things that really interesting about your career is you've yeah. got this kind of really sort of computational motor control mm. work you've worked in schools with children yes you've you you're addressing really interesting questions about social interaction mm-hmm. and intentions and goals yeah. but also using vr and motion capture mm-hmm. and you you're not afraid to ask quite difficult questions and yeah. throw quite technical mm-hmm. answers you know as yeah. a way of finding out if you'd like just to talk a little bit about, mm. you know, kind of your your view on what where you'd like to go next, where do you sort of see this progressing? What what interests yeah. you? Um, so I'm increasingly interested in getting at ecolo- getting ecological validity. So you know, so many of the, the lab experiments I was trained to do is one person staring at a computer and hitting the odd button and things, and that's such an impoverished situation. Um, and what I'm really interested in at the moment is face-to-face social interactions, the kind of things that happen in the real world and how can we get at the neuroscience of mm. that. Um, and I think there's a whole bunch of new technologies now that are letting us start to do that. So one thing is virtual reality, um, which lets us kind of create semi-controlled social interactions. Um, another thing is functional neuroinfrared spectroscopy. So this is mobile brain imaging where we can use light to capture cortical activation patterns. It's silent. You can do it while you're walking and talking and engaging in um, ordinary behaviours. Um, the motion capture, I think, is still really underappreciated as a method because now, again, motion capture 
has plummeted in cost compared to what it was mm. um, five or ten years ago and putting a motion capture suit on somebody and then recording the details of your behaviour then gives you the potential to get some sort of really proper mathematical models. So, mm. you know, there's so many studies out there where you're videoing people and then scoring the videos, which is slow and inaccurate and um, really, really inefficient. And now we can do it with mocap and really get it, the, the details. And now that we're doing that, we're, we're finding details of behaviour that are there in videos, but people have never coded them or noticed them before. Yeah. Um, what sort so we found this um, fast nodding pattern. So when you're listening to somebody, you do a little teeny tiny nod, um, which turned out to be really, really systematic just when you're listening um, and things. And yet it doesn't you know, get coded separately as, as, as a behaviour, but we think yeah. it may be an important behaviour. It's important. Um, I'm sitting here nodding. I'm actually yes. doing it. <laughs> You're doing a big nod, though. It's a, t- it's a tiny yeah, nod. Yeah, I do. Though. I became horribly aware yeah, of my nodding. You've you become very of aware of it. And then one of the really exciting projects that um, we're setting up at the moment is we're working with actors um, to understand what's happening in your brain when you're performing shape, you know, theatre on stage oh, wonderful. and things like that. Because the brilliant thing about working with actors is... They're experts in social cognition. They're really well, you know, in, in social behaviour. They're yeah. really well trained and they can do the same thing repeatedly again and again and again. They can go up on stage every night and, and play these characters yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and so they're such an interesting group to work with and we're putting together a um, performance that's going to be on at the Bloomsbury Theatre where we will have actors performing Shakespeare while we're brain imaging them on stage. Oh, amazing. And it's going to be really cool. It's the 15th and 16th of May. Oh, fantastic. Um, the okay. tickets aren't on sale yet, but they will be soon. <laughs> fantastic. Um, though. Well, we'll have this out with so, comments. So brilliant. Yeah. It's oh, really worth exciting. keeping an eye out for. Really exciting. Um, Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Is there anything mm-hmm. um, that you think we could do differently um, to sort of, you know, if you could change mm-hmm. one thing, it doesn't have to be anything you yeah. want to change. You know, is there anything? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the the people, the thing that I think is to, is, the things that I think are very tough at the moment is finding funding for early career people. Yes. Um, I think masters, the masters is a big barrier for people who can't afford to fund a masters because I never did a masters. I never did a masters. I back, back in the day, you didn't need to, and now no. everyone needs to do a masters, and and there's no funding for it, mm. um, which I think is a big barrier. And then the first postdoc can also be quite a big barrier. There aren't really grants available. And there's an enormous amount of luck in terms of when you're coming to the end of a, a PhD, does there happen to be a nice PI who happens to want somebody mm. at the right stage, especially if, if you're tied to geographical locations and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I think, you know, if if I were in charge of pots of money, those would be the kind of things that I think would be, could be worth supporting. I completely um, agree. I, th- I think there there was there used to be a lot more small mo- pots of money specifically for people spinning out of their PhDs, yes. and it's pretty much all dried up. Exactly. I know one university, for example, again will give um, six month long grants to PhD students as they finish to write up their papers yeah. and launch themselves and apply for fellowships, and that kind difference. of thing would be so valuable. Yeah, um, definitely. And one very last question. Um, You're sort of, no one ever teaches us to be managers in academia, and you're very dependent on sort of Mm. the experience of the labs that you're in, and people do run labs in very different ways. If you have a philosophy that you would think of as being your philosophy for how to make things work for Mm -hmm. you at a lab level, Mm -hmm. could you tell me what that is? 
I'm not sure I have one. Um, I, I think I'm pretty relaxed. I think one of the things that I benefited from an enormous amount during my postdocs was benign neglect to a large extent. I was just told, get on with it. Yeah. And I went and did it. Um, so, yeah, I, I try not to, you know, micromanage people or breathe down their necks. I try to give them opportunities mm. and, and provide equipment. I see my role as to be, you know, I provide as much funding and as much equipment, as much support as people need, and then I let them get on with it. And they've yeah. got the opportunity. And some people take up that opportunity in different ways, but that's okay. It, it's mm. it's up to them how they want to make use of what's available. Um Brilliant, thank you. Well, one of the things that I like about how you run things, I like your, so it's a weekly lab meeting, isn't it? Uh, yes. So it seems like a really kind of, you know, mm-hmm. on, the, on the occasions when I've been to it, it's yeah. really, it really feels like a unified group of people. It's great. Mm. It's, a really, it's a really nice atmosphere. You've done a good job there. Yeah. Well, I seem to have quite a big group because it's not just the core people that I fund, but then there's several other sort of linked research fellows who yeah. are doing good stuff, so I support them um, yeah. and invite them along to lab meetings and things. Um, because, again, I think these, these people need to be supported. Definitely, um, and, I think, and it gives a really and, good atmosphere. There's, there's, there's yeah. a lot of different kinds of expertise in the room. It's great. Yeah, and I like having a lot of variety in my lab. So at the moment, you know, half of my people are computing and engineering people, mm. but there's still a bunch of people who are doing work with autistic kids and there's adults and there's, you know lots of different approaches and lots of different backgrounds is always yeah, good that is i think that's a real strength thank you very much Antonia. thank you thank you <laughs> thanks for listening this has been what works my name is sophie scott